Alliance of Women Filmmakers. This is Visionary Voices, behind the scenes conversations with groundbreaking women and non-binary filmmakers from around the world. I'm Diana Means. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Today, I am speaking with cinematographer and director Leslie Elizondo about her film, Basta. Basta sheds light on the janitorial system in Los Angeles through the experiences of Veronica, a 24-year-old immigrant from El Salvador who created a grassroots movement to fight against the normalization of sexual abuse in the janitorial industry. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So, Leslie, we're going to start with you telling a little bit about your background as a filmmaker and then what led you to this particular project about the janitorial system in Los Angeles. Sure. Um, So I started making films in film school. Before that, I had a lot of interest in film. I was a fan. I watched everything and anything from global cinema to black and white Mexican films and really enjoyed as an audience member. And around high school, I had a teacher. It was a theater class that we normally didn't do anything in that class. And I've never been that type of student. So one day, you know, I'm bugging the teacher to give us an assignment and just kind of waving his hand for me to go away. He says, just go make a movie or something. And that kind of clicked in my brain. And, you know, I gathered a bunch of friends. I knew exactly what story I wanted to tell. I grabbed my mom's camera and I came back with the footage. It was on a DV tape. The teacher was like, I don't know what to do with that. So it never got edited. But when I was applying for schools, I applied to film schools. And for my undergraduate studies, I went to Cal State Long Beach and then a couple of years later, I entered UCLA Film School. So yeah, that's a little bit on my background and training on films. How we found this project, this is a co-produced, co-direction collaboration with a really good friend and colleague of mine. Her name is Cecilia Albertini. And she actually found, um, well, she read an article from the LA Times that was showcasing these group of night janitor women that were putting on a self-defense class and that, you know, their group was called Yabasta. And the article kind of explained a little bit about their background, about their plight. And, you know, Cecilia reading this article immediately felt like it would be a great story. She called me and told me about it. And that's how we got started. A lot of these workers are immigrants and they come from countries where abuse puts shame on the women. How hard was it for them to share with you? Honestly, it wasn't that hard. And the main reason for that is that their union and their sort of collaborative groups had already done a lot of work with these women and sort of educating them out of that deep shame that is attached to kind of sexual assault and the idea that as a victim, you somehow had something to do with it. And so their organizations had already kind of dismantled a lot of that for the women that we got to talk to. So by the point 
where we approached them to ask them to share their stories, they were all very, very willing because they were on this journey, this fight to want to get their word out, want to get heard, want as many of their stories told so that change could happen. I would imagine that a lot of immigrants come into Los Angeles as janitorial staff and the invisible worker class, they call it. And that's how they have built lives and built families out here. And it was just something that I had never thought of behind the scenes as to what they go through. I know in September and part of what Veronica's fight was, was to get a bill passed, the bill AB 1978, which was signed and it mandates all California employers to provide sexual harassment prevention training and to all janitors and that they must hold uh, registries that monitor abuse. Do you know if the statistics have changed at all? They have dropped a little bit. Kind of one of the main reasons why this story is so important to us is because these are people that are often overlooked. Like you mentioned, they're these invisible workers. And that's precisely what put them in such a vulnerable position. You know, coming into these high rise buildings, these business office areas that were empty by the time that they got there to clean, for the most part, each floor is assigned to one person. And about 80% of the workers, between 80 and 70%, at least when we were making the film, are women. And probably 90% of their managers, of the overseers, are men. And that was precisely where the kind of power imbalance was happening where you had these women working by themselves in an entire floor being accosted by their superiors. And the fact that most of them are of mixed status, they um, are undocumented. That was kind of the key to the extortion from, you know, the perpetrators. Does this bill AB 1978, does it also hold the buildings accountable? If anything happens to the women while they're working? I'm not sure, but that was another issue that was kind of at the center of their fight because the cleaning staff is usually a company that's hired out. It's not part of the building. And also it's not part of kind of the companies that are running off of that building. Right. I mean, most high rise buildings in Los Angeles aren't necessarily owned by one company. You have multiple companies operating out of the same building. And so the building hires a cleaning company. So essentially, while the silence was broken, while kind of trying to figure out what can we do to protect these women, there was a lot of kind of pointing at each other from, you know, the companies operating from these buildings, from the building owners, and then from the cleaning staff of like, well, it's it's like your fault or or you're a, you're a blame. And they, they just didn't want to take accountability that it was a, a combination of the system in which these people are hired and sort of left kind of vulnerable. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to answer whether like AB 1978 specifically holds either the building or, you know, the company's accountable. Now, in your documentary, you feature the center Yabasta that Veronica co-founded. Did she talk to you at all about how she raised the money for the center and where is the center located? 
And how do they get the word out to other janitors to come to the center? So the center essentially is funded by SCIU, the workers union. Um, the great thing about essentially this whole story and the and sort of the rise of you know, these women, including Veronica, telling their stories and being supported is because the union kind of rised up to the occasion. They were not aware that over, you know, 70 percent of, of night janitors were or had experienced, um, you know, assault and rape in the workforce. And when when they realized and the way that they realized is there was kind of a public television, like documentary crew that did like a one hour special on these night janitors. So the union members and the union directors saw this documentary and held, you know, a meeting with a lot of their union workers and essentially kind of asked, what can we do? And so it was very much supported by their union. And so uh, the Yavasta Center is inside of um, the SEIU headquarters in downtown Los Angeles. And the way that they get the word out is very basically they send out these promotoras, these women that are part of the Yavasta organization into workspaces because they know that, you know, they mail literature to the companies. They might, you know, it's not in their best interest to educate their workers on their rights. Unfortunately, so they have people, you know, boots on the ground that go into these spaces and talk to the janitorial staff. Another, you know, huge kind of problem with the whole situation is because these women are of mixed status about in 80 cases that were reported to the union. Only one was reported to the police when we were making the film. It's it's truly awful. And you would think like. You would go to the police first, but I mean, the fact that they are undocumented, these workers are very afraid to go to the police and sort of identify themselves even as being victims. And that's what Yavasta was, is trying to change and has been working to change because if it doesn't go into a legal investigation, the perpetrators are going to keep doing what they're doing. So that is startling. Out of 80 reported cases, only one of them ended up being reported to the police. And is that because of undocumented status that they don't end up reporting? Absolutely. It's the fear that their immigration status is going to be jeopardized somehow, even though they are the victims might start getting, you know, deportation proceedings. Um, and essentially, that's that's the biggest fear that they're going to be deported back to their countries, you know, lose everything that they worked for here. Um, a lot of these times, if these people get deported, it usually happens without notice. They sort of get picked up in a random place on their way to work. And yeah, just it's this expedited proceedings where. They don't have the chance a lot of the times not even to, you know, figure out where they're good, where their children are going to stay. Um, there's thousands and thousands of stories of children from undocumented parents that would go to school and then come home to find out that their parents had been deported. So this is kind of a plight that's very kind of standard to 
you know, my community. Um, I know these stories because I've known people and if not, you know, family members, friends where this has happened and in Los Angeles. So it is a very real fear of coming to the police as being undocumented that, well, now they know who I am, where I work. And if they decide to deport me, they can, because now they have all my information. So what other recourse do these women have? I know they report it to the agency. What happens from there if it doesn't become a legal reporting to the police? Is there anything the agency can do? While we were working with the film, they had passed two laws. I believe it is 1978 that does state that it's a very clear protection saying that if anybody decides to report this to authorities, that there will not be any kind of information sent to ICE, basically. I'm not specifically sure how, but I know it is written into the law. Um, So that's one of the things that when people come in to report at the union, they do let them know because this law has passed. If you do decide to to report when you decide to report, you are protected. You will not be held accountable for your immigration status um, and, you know, have all of that happen to you. Another thing, too, is that, again, these are people coming out of very vulnerable situations and also having experienced a horrific work situation. Sometimes these people aren't ready to talk to police. Um, So the union offers what the Yabasta Center has. Um, So they always kind of refer to them, you know, to the support groups, to people that they can talk to if they want to. They have tried as well to work directly with the companies. But again, they've had a lot of pushback in terms of, you know, getting these essentially these people fired and away from their positions of power. But there's several kind of options that they that they offer. And the great thing is that because they have a lot of these janitorial staff that sort of moved into being organizers and and promotores now have the knowledge and the options to share with people that do the same work that they do or that they used to do. So if the story does reach the Yavasta group, the Yavasta Coalition, the Yavasta Center or SEIU, they have already a ton of resources established. And again, these were established because the union kind of supported these women to change, to change the status quo. Now, going back to the film, how long did it take you to shoot this documentary and what resources did you have to shoot it? So like a lot of documentarians know, it's an ongoing process. It sort of depends on events or key moments that you feel are going to be great for the story to build kind of the world and share that understanding as well as kind of the sit down interviews that you schedule. Our filming process was between eight and nine months. So a little under a year, pretty much we followed them for for an entire year. And we were invited to protest uh, that they held. We were invited to the trainings that they held in the center. We went with them 
downtown where they held kind of these demonstrations that we included in the film, as well as the sit down interviews. And our resources was basically ourselves, Cecilia as the main kind of executive producer of this. She essentially rented equipment and she hired the sound uh, mixer, the sound recordist we shot in most of these places. And then I came in with my digital camera. Cecilia also came in with her digital camera. So we were kind of like this two camera team most of the time. But when we did have kind of important events, as well as the interviews, we rented equipment. And basically, you know, Cecilia was the one that funded this. Did you have any other help from outside funding or was it just grassroots between the two of you? It was just the two of us. Post work too, she edited the film and I finished the color, made sure that our shots kind of matched and they looked great. Basically, aside from the two of us, it was our, our sound people that we hired. But yeah, it was basically both of us. Well, you being a cinematographer and her being an editor, that was a perfect match. You had a lot of really good footage in the film. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's understandable that it took. And that was part of the reason I asked that question, because it seems like you spent a vested amount of time with the women and with the Yobasta organization following them to get all of that great footage. So it took about a year. Mm -hmm. It took about a year to get all that footage. We were so lucky that that year they had a ton of things going on. The Yabasa Center was kind of completed toward the end of that year. In between that year, they also funded essentially a theater performance. Uh, so they brought in, and she's actually a good friend of mine. Uh, they brought in Janet Godoy, who kind of helped these women write a script, rehearse them, develop the costumes, the scenery, and I think it's an application process. I'm not sure how the theater works, but they kind of got into the Fringe, Hollywood Fringe Festival. And that's a festival that funds productions. So for 2019, they put on this beautiful theatrical production in one of Hollywood's theaters. And we got the opportunity by that time, you know, we had very much established our relationship. So we were also there, you know, to support and to watch this amazing performance. And because I'm so close with theater director, uh, with Jeanette, I was privy to the information of how they developed that play. And very basically, the workers were the ones that wrote it because these are their stories. So they started just kind of sharing stories. And then from there, piece together kind of a narrative arc that they can showcase on stage. And so I think all people that do documentary understand that there's just so many like bits and pieces of story that you don't really get to dive too much into because, you know, your projects needs to tell kind of an overall arc. Uh, but that was kind of one of the events that happened that year that I wish we could have showcased a little bit longer. Another thing, too, is that Veronica, it starts the film with with her telling, kind of introducing herself and her story. And she says this this story that, you know, growing up, she really wanted to be a journalist and she wanted to be in front of the cameras and tell stories about the world. And a lot of the events toward the end of the year that Veronica was doing was her 
being put up in a podium, having muse people with cameras on her. And this was this woman who, yes, came to this country undocumented. Yes, was a night shift janitor for a lot of years, but now she's kind of a co-founder of this incredible, beautiful organization that has changed the world. It's changed California. It's secured. The people that are coming after her are protected. But Leslie, what is next for you as a filmmaker? Um, it's been kind of a hard transition, transitioning out of kind of the COVID situation. Artistically, I've been really blocked lately. And so I'm starting to get back into kind of because ideas come all the time. Um, my cinematography work, that's sort of an independent and, you know, people hire me. And so naturally, I want to continue to find collaborators in that respect. But me as a director and, you know, writer of my own stories, they've sort of been kept as ideas. And so what's next for me is really trying to bring back that spark that actually has me sit down and develop these things out. But also I am very dedicated to my work as a professor and really I truly enjoy teaching. And to me, you know, my students are also collaborators or just starting out and I get to sort of help them figure out equipment and filmmaking and all of that. So what's next is sort of trying to continue these multiple facets of, of my career forward and try to work as much as I can. I truly feel like being in production, being on set is my happy place. And so whatever gets me out on set, I will do. So yeah, just keep working. You are probably the 10th filmmaker that I have interviewed that has said being on the set is my happy place. And I can completely connect with that as well, because that is also my happy place other than talking to amazing filmmakers like yourself. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your film, your work with Women Voices Now and just all that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for for having me, Diana. It's a true pleasure to be part of this podcast. And yeah, it's amazing the work that you do as well. So thank you. Thank you. Alliance of Women Filmmakers is proud to partner with Women Voices Now to present this podcast. Women Voices Now uses film to drive positive social change that advances girls' and women's rights globally. For more information about Women Voices Now, Visit womenvoicesnow.org to learn more about Alliance of Women Filmmakers and other organizations that we partner with. Please visit lawomensfest.com. Visionary Voices is produced by Diana Means with editing from Otaku Media. Visionary Voices is a production of Alliance of Women Filmmakers and made possible in part by a grant from the Department of Cultural Affairs. Our website, visionaryvoicespodcast.com. Visionary Voices.